When Republicans lost control of the House in 2006, they knew that they were going to fight to get it back. And, spoiler alert, they did. On November 2nd, 2010, after just four years in power, Democrats became the minority party once again. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Last night, I had a chance to speak to the leaders of the House and the Senate and reached out to those who had both won and lost in both parties. Democrats lost 63 seats in the House in one night. It was the biggest House swing since the Great Depression. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, some election nights are more fun than others. Some are exhilarating. Some are humbling. The election was widely seen as backlash against President Obama's first term. Over the last two years, we've made progress. But clearly, too many Americans haven't felt that progress yet. And they told us that yesterday. And as president, I take responsibility for that. The magnitude of that swing in power in 2010 was shocking. Like, 63 seats is a lot of seats. But the fact that Democrats lost control of the House, that actually wasn't that big of a surprise. During Obama's first two years in office, the party had just narrowly passed the Affordable Care Act. Um, And obviously this is uh, an issue that uh, has been contentious. The 2009 Economic Stimulus Act was controversial. Not a single Republican in the House voted for it. The economy continued to struggle. If right now we had uh, 5% unemployment instead of 9.6% unemployment, then people would have more confidence in those policy choices. Democrats in the House and also in the Senate and in state legislatures and in governor seats, they paid a big price for Obama's policy decisions. After all the time and money that it took to win control of the House in 2006, the Democrats saw all of their efforts washed away. feels bad. Uh, And so there is not only sadness about seeing them go, but uh, there's also uh, a lot of uh, questioning on my part in terms of could I have done something differently or done something more so that those folks would still be here. Martin Powers, and this is How to Flip the House, a miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast about midterm elections. And on this episode, we're not just telling the story of how Republicans won control of the House in 2010. We're telling the story of how they made the flip stick. Because we've seen in past episodes how an upswell in voter sentiment and a strong campaign strategy can lead to these shifts in power. And in 2010, backlash against President Obama sent the pendulum swinging once again, this time far to the right. But something else was happening in that midterm election. In the years after, in 2012 and 2014 and 2016, Democrats didn't even come close to threatening Republican control. And that was because Republicans did something in 2010 to cement their status in the majority. They used a method that nobody saw coming. To understand how Republicans managed to hold on to control, you have to go back and understand how they got it in the first place. Unlike 1994 and 2006, this wasn't a top-down, hyper-organized campaign orchestrated by the top tier of House Republicans. Instead, it's a story of grassroots movements and people far outside of the Republican campaign machine. People like Chip Kravak. Chip Kravak did not aspire to be a politician. In fact, for most of his career, he wasn't even that interested in politics. He was a former commercial pilot and before that, an officer in the Navy. We were told to keep our politics in our pockets. We were not even supposed to put out lawn signs because we were neutral. We follow the president of the United States, whoever the president of the United States is, and that's the way it always should be. Chip is 59 years old now, and it's been a long time since he's been full-time in the military. But you still totally get that vibe from him. 
Like, he has a buzz cut, he wears perfectly pressed khakis and a polo. But uh, after I retired, um, I started to just pay a little more attention politically. He, like many other people, was concerned about Obamacare. One of the things that I really objected to in the Affordable Care Act was the mandate. That's the part in the law that says that everyone in the country has to be on health insurance. Otherwise, they'll be taxed extra for not having it. I disagreed with that because I thought it set a very dangerous precedence by letting the central government mandate to citizens that it must purchase a product. And so he decided to have a talk with his congressman, Jim Overstar, a longtime incumbent Democrat who'd won 16 straight elections. Overstar had clout. He was the chair of the House Transportation Committee, which is the largest committee in Congress. Chip, who at one time was a registered independent, he'd actually voted for Oberstar twice. So Chip wanted to know why Oberstar was supporting the president's health care plan. And he showed up to Oberstar's office and requested to speak with the congressman. And to be honest with you, the staff there, though nice to a degree, kind of blew me off. What'd they say? The congressman is too busy to meet with you. Those are their exact words. And I said, oh, okay. Can you tell me? what the congressman's position is. And they didn't want to engage. They didn't want to tell me. I said, this isn't right. This is not right. This is not representation. Chip decided that he was going to get involved. He wanted to help somebody run against Oberstar. And so he called his local Republican office. So I called them up, and I never got a return phone call. (laughs) So I said, okay, so what do I do? Uh, So I just kept on researching and just kept on trying to get involved and reaching out to people. And in the process, Chip found this other stuff that he did not agree with Oberstar on. Land swaps that were included in the Clean Water Act. New regulations on Minnesota's polymet mining industry. And he saw Oberstar's and Obama's actions as a form of government overreach, imposing harmful regulations, overspending tax dollars. So Chip decided... Somebody has to run against this guy. I just said, I'm going to run for Congress. Though I had no idea what that meant. Absolutely none whatsoever. I had no idea. I just started thinking tactically. What would I do if I was in the military? I need resources. I need people. He knew that it was going to be an uphill battle. The district itself is squarely Democratic, has been for decades. And so he tried to get backup from the state Republican Party. When I went down to Minneapolis to the Republican Party, they kind of patted me on the head and said, good luck with Jim Overstar, because he was such an entrenched figure in the 8th District. He never lost a county. In the 36 years he was running, he never lost a county. And, you know, I, I knew what I was up against. So Chip took the go-it-alone approach, and he was fine with that. In fact, the idea that he wasn't a propped-up establishment Republican candidate, that's part of why people really liked him. It felt very authentic. He was a guy who was truly in it to help the district, not just to rub elbows with lobbyists. And he started to go out to get people to hear his message. At farmers markets and town hall meetings and, of course, at parades. There were a lot of parades. What I would do is I would run. I had my chalk and shoes on and I would run from side to side to side to side. And talk to people, you know, and um, so hi, my name is Chip Quebec, and uh, I hope that you will, uh, you know, I can get your vote. And he talked about these ideas, ideas that he thought would resonate across parties, ideas about protecting the Constitution and cracking down on fiscal irresponsibility. He told voters that Republican or Democrat, you could look around America in 2009 and 2010 And you could see that things were not in a good place. Chip was one guy running in one district. But this feeling that something about our country was under threat and that the Republican establishment wasn't doing anything about it, that was starting to bubble up in districts across America. I fought for the Constitution of the United States. defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, I believe in the Constitution, and I guess that's what attracted me to a lot of the members of the Tea Party. When did you first hear about the Tea Party? Uh, I think we heard about it early in 2009. Uh, You just didn't understand the 
the potency of the group or the potency of the, the activists who are, who are joining in. Paul Kane is a congressional correspondent for The Washington Post. He's been covering Congress for 18 years. And in the lead up to the 2010 election, he started to hear that something unusual was happening. Um, there's a sort of slightly famous Tea Party rally that happened in Bakersfield, California, the home of future House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Uh, on It was tax day 2009, April 15th. It was a rally protesting Obama's $800 billion stimulus bill. Future Speaker of the House John Boehner was also there. And um, McCarthy and Boehner separately in interviews later on would say they, they, they wandered out into this rally. They looked at these people and said, huh, these guys are on our side. We should, we should really sort of pay attention to this. The group wasn't really organized. It was a grassroots collection of people across the country. There wasn't any clear leadership. But their themes were clear. These people were just as disdainful of establishment Republicans as they were of Democrats. It was just about smaller government, less spending, uh, big concern about the federal, the federal debt, and it was sort of reigning in the size of government. And they came to believe that Obama himself was the symbol of big government. And there was also this shift that you could start to see in the sentiment within Congress. This personal animosity to Obama from the right and particularly from the Tea Party. Obama remained extremely popular among the super left, but he was losing swing voters and people on the right were developing this intense opposition to him and to what he symbolized. And there was this moment in September 2009 where Obama gave a second joint address to Congress and he was trying to sell his health care plan. And he got to a point where there was a discussion about immigrants and illegal immigrants and what benefits they would get. And Joe Wilson, who is this complete backbench Republican, just complete heat of the moment, just screamed, you lie at the president. And when you watch the video, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden are standing behind the president and they hear that and their eyes get huge and their heads like whip around like they can't believe it. Somebody just said that to the president. Everybody heard it. And it, it became this sort of gateway moment, gateway drug in which the decorum really seemed to, you know, blow up. And in that moment, Paul realized that this opposition to Obama, it was going to become a hugely salient political force in the upcoming midterm. And in the lead up to November 2010, Paul started covering a bunch of these like preview elections, special elections, primary elections in both chambers of Congress. And he started to notice this trend. There was a new kind of candidate that seemed to be getting traction. These ultra-right, grassroots men and women who weren't afraid to take on establishment Republicans. And you could already tell that they weren't going to be afraid to become an obstructionist force in Congress. With every election, that trend felt more and more like an omen. It started in January 2010, Massachusetts. An unknown Republican candidate, Scott Brown, goes for the seat previously held by the late Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, Democratic royalty, a lifelong advocate of health care reform. It was a symbolic seat, widely considered a guarantee for the Democrats. And then here come these Tea Party activists out of nowhere, telling people why health care reform was bad and vowing to help Scott Brown win. And that's when it really became clear that Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, had become this real symbol for the Tea Party, that there was this, in their view, a government takeover of the healthcare industry, and they had to go fight it. The AP is now projecting that Scott Brown is the winner of the Massachusetts United States Senate race. And so the symbolism was incredible. The victory was incredible. And that was when everybody realized, oh, wow, something is going on here. May 2010, Kentucky, Republican primary. Far-right candidate Rand Paul up against a guy with the endorsement of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. They thought the race was close. Instead, Rand Paul won by about 15 points that night and just blew out the establishment guy. 
Rand Paul stepped up to the stage to give his primary victory speech. And I can't remember the line exactly, but he basically said, I have a message, a message from the Tea Party, a message that is loud and clear and does not mince words. We've come to take our government back. Sky-high unemployment, the dangers of Obamacare, an ineffective stimulus bill. These themes were being raised again and again. So there were all these signs from the special elections and from the primaries that the Tea Party was going to be a powerful force. Then, November, election night. Election night 2010, I was in the Post newsroom just running through races. That's a the House races are always the craziest on election night because there are so many of them that you're trying to track and uh, you sort of don't know which which way anything's going and who has the best tally and who's got a spreadsheet and Chris Eliza, who and I were running around uh, talking and trying to figure out the, the races and what was happening in Senate races. Um, but I remember just going through the East Coast house races to sort of get a sense of what was happening. And you could see the ground falling out. Democrats were losing congressional seats in places that nobody expected. New York, six Democratic seats fall to Republicans. Pennsylvania, the congressional delegation flips from 12 Democrats and seven Republicans to seven Democrats and 12 Republicans. New Hampshire, both house seats switch from blue to red. And that's how you sort of began to see the wave moving. And you thought, wow, this is this is going to be done before you even get to California. Based on our estimates, our projections right now, we believe they're going to win at least 50 seats, at least 50 seats in the House. Bill, uh, obviously a big moment for Republicans. Yeah, it's a great moment for us. Uh, goodbye, Speaker Pelosi. Goodbye, Chairman Frank. Uh, maybe the one that catches it and for me In Minnesota, there's is- Chip Kravak, the political newbie running against Congressman Oberstar. Chip and his staff were in one of his favorite places, Toby's. I mean, Toby's is a restaurant? It's a restaurant. Oh, oh yeah. Got to go to Toby's. Ever go to Minnesota? <laughs> Got to go to Toby's. And the numbers came in. By a margin of 1.6 points, Chip Kravak won the election for the 8th Congressional District of Minnesota. The, vo- the voters have spoken. Yes, And I hope they are paying attention in Washington. <laughs> but from across this great nation. Let this serve as a warning to Congress. We don't work for you. You work for us. Chip Kravak was deemed the biggest upset of the 2010 midterms. His win became a symbol of the magnitude of the wave election. Even in this unremarkable district in Minnesota, controlled by Democrats for decades, a Republican with Tea Party support and a vow to take down Obamacare could win a seat in the House. And in any other election year, that might have been the end of the story. A new wave of enthusiasm, a group of outsiders stirring things up and turning shifts in public sentiment into a massive victory in the House. But in 2010, something else was happening, almost behind the scenes. Something that would end up changing our politics even more. As Democrats and Republicans around the country reacted to the news that Republicans had flipped the House, a man named Chris Jankowski was watching the returns come in. And he had one thought. They're paying attention to the wrong thing. They don't even see what just happened. We knew we'd done something, and of course, all the news coverage, almost all of it, was about Congress. And that's a big deal. You know, that is obviously the goal. But nobody was really thinking. To tell Christian Kowski's story, we need to rewind. Back before Chip Kravak decided to run for office, back before the 2010 midterm election cycle, all the way back to the presidential election of 2008, when Obama first came into office. At that time, Chris was a political strategist working for the Republican State Leadership Committee. His job was basically to try to get people to care about state legislative elections. You know, we were kind of the junior varsity and, you know, 
JV only gets so much attention. Chris is a middle-aged white guy who wears glasses. He's even-keeled, hard to excite, really likes chess. And he was one of those Republicans who watched Obama win in the 08 presidential election and became gravely concerned. Obama had sparked record turnout, boosting the success of other Democrats on the ballot and helping Democrats in the House pick up 21 more seats. Obama's election also highlighted this looming issue, the long-term demographic shift in the country. The stuff that we hear all the time about how America is becoming younger and more urban and more populated with black and brown people and with immigrants, all of these things could become increasingly problematic for Republicans in coming years. The GOP was staring down an existential crisis. Chris knew that if they didn't take active steps, they could potentially face years of minority status in Congress. We'd just been wiped out, really, as a party uh, in 2008. And so in 2009, there was really a desire to, what is next? What is the path forward? And on a morning about nine months after Obama's first election, Chris sat down at his breakfast table, opened up his newspaper, and read a story about congressional district maps. Just a general story about Congress and the future of Congress and the changes in demographics and everything and what the census projections were. But towards the end, it started to talk about how state legislatures are going to be the ones drawing these maps in most instances. And Chris had this idea. But to understand the idea, you have to understand the census and some of the stuff that you probably haven't heard since middle school civics class. Here's the part that you probably know. Well, uh, the census is done every 10 years. It's a count of the entire U.S. population. And we use it to decide how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. And every 10 years after the census is done, we reapportion the seats given to each state, depending on their population. So states that have grown in size may get an extra seat. States that have fewer people get a seat taken away. And when a seat is added or removed from a state, you sort of have to blow up the state's existing map of congressional districts and start from scratch. This is a process known as redistricting. And when you draw new congressional districts, there's one big requirement. Every district has to have an equal number of people in it. But beyond that, there's a lot of leeway on how to divvy up the state's population. It usually ends up being a complex and complicated process. Depending on how you draw the lines, you can give an advantage to a certain political party or demographic. For example, you could draw one set of district boundaries to include as many Democrats as possible. And then Democrats would have a much higher chance winning subsequent elections. The Texas Senate is holding its first public hearing of the special session to adopt new election maps. The Select Committee on Redistricting met this morning to begin hearing testimony on adoption. Every state handles redistricting in its own way. In some states, there is an independent commission of people who are tasked with trying to make the redistricting process as fair as possible. But in most states, it's the governor and the two branches of the state legislature that have the key roles and responsibilities. And if you look at history, the one way to make sure that you have an edge in redistricting is by being the party in control of the process. And 2010 was a zero year, a census year, when the whole process would begin again. So knowing all that, Chris realized that if he could get big wins in state legislatures, he could help redistricting go in favor of Republicans. The idea of going into state legislative seats, while they were relatively obscure and less expensive, they could have a national impact. It was like finding a secret backdoor entrance to control of the House. You wouldn't have to spend millions of dollars to win one hyper-competitive congressional race. You could spend a small fraction of that and be a game-changer in those tiny elections. And then, once your party controlled the state legislature, they could redraw the district lines. And you could all but guarantee that your party would win in the majority of those congressional districts. It was a heist. And like any real heist, this one had to have a good heist name. I like to imagine what this one might have been called, something like 
Mission Statehouse Takeover or Operation Win the Majority or who came up with the acronym REDMAP? I don't remember, but we were really hung up on the red thing because as a Republicans, we were we were distraught that in 2000 when this whole red-blue thing came up that we got stuck with red. Because red, you know, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, communism or whatever. But uh, by then, the, the horse had left the barn, I guess. So they embraced the whole red thing. And they came up with the perfect name to get across their core mission. Redistricting Majority Project. And then, you know, you take different parts of each word and it becomes red map. Project red map. You know, like the project to make the legislative map of the U.S. look red. It, that was the thing, was trying to take something obscure and kind of complicated and make it simple. And Chris came up with a 30-second elevator pitch to convince wealthy donors that they needed to donate to all of these dinky little state house races. You spend tens of millions of dollars over 10 years trying to keep control of half of these swing congressional seats. And for pennies on the dollar, we believe we can take them out of play. All of them. Still, it was a tough sell. First of all, the whole thing was kind of confusing and seemed like somewhat of a long shot. And also, you ran the risk of these donors getting offended. Well, they're used to getting a call from a governor or a senator or someone running for president, someone they see on the news, someone they read about. So you can imagine how they'd feel when they're getting a call from Chris asking for money to help Joe Schmo running for the whatever district of the Wisconsin State Assembly. There were also some folks that would normally write a certain size check that wrote a smaller check. And that's what a lot a lot of what we got were smaller checks that we hoped they would write. But that was the beauty of Project Redmap. They didn't need that much money. In a state legislative race, a few hundred thousand dollars could buy enough print mailers and radio ads and TV slots to make it impossible for a Democrat to win in that district. So Chris's team cobbled together their donations, $30 million, the cost of a couple Senate campaigns. And then they chose their targets, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York. They started spending money on attack ads in those states. And in all those places, there were Democratic state representatives who were settling in for a quiet reelection campaign. And then... From out of nowhere, they're hit by a brick. Republicans used all of the kinds of of focus groups and polling and intense negative advertising that you would ordinarily associate with a statewide race or a national race. And they did it at a local level where no one usually does this. No one expected it. And the incumbents didn't have the ability to counter it. That's journalist David Daly. He wrote a book about Chris and about Project Redmap and about how redistricting changed the game after the 2010 election. Uh, do you want uh, <laughs> how do you handle the title? The book has a name that is somewhat provocative. So a warning, you're about to hear some strong language. I'm the author of Ratfucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. We sold the book as Gerrymandered Nation, and really? the publisher insisted that the word gerrymander not appear in the title or in the subtitle because it would put people to sleep and not sell any books. <laughs> well, this definitely doesn't put people to sleep. No, but, you know, I can't tell my mom I have a book out, so. <laughs> <laughs> in reporting his book, David spent years figuring out exactly what went down in 2010. And one thing is clear. Republicans carpet-bombed hundreds of thousands of dollars into these completely otherwise obscure races. And David talked to people who experienced this firsthand. I went and visited with a state representative outside of Pittsburgh who had held that office for about 25 years. State Representative David Levdansky was a Democrat, beloved among his constituents, extremely confident about his chances for re-election. Until September 2010, when the mailers started arriving. And every day he would pull his pickup truck up to his mailbox and open it up, and there would be another four-page, full-color mailer talking about what a horrible person he was. Mailers that would say things like, 
David Levdansky voted to put a billion-dollar tax increase on working families. David Levdansky tries to increase his own pension by 50 percent. David Levdansky voted to waste $600 million in the height of the recession. And after the uh, first or second day, he thought, well, this is bad. And then it continued for 21 days in a row. Every day, another mailer. He said that by the end of this, he wouldn't have voted for himself. David Levdansky lost his race by 151 votes. That's how intense and focused and specific and sophisticated RedMap was. You could call it a sneak attack. These negative ads flooding the airwaves around the country in the weeks before the election. But the reality was that back in Washington, D.C., Chris Jankowski and the rest of the Project RedMap team were trying to get as much publicity as possible to get journalists to write about the genius of their plan. We did everything we possibly could to promote what we were doing and tell the world what we were doing. Uh, And it was with mixed results, honestly. Few people cared, least of all Democrats who weren't spending anything near the same time or money on statehouse races, because the common assumption was those races don't matter. And then came election night. The same election night where Chip Kravak is watching the returns at Toby's in Minnesota. The same election night where Paul Kane is watching the returns flood in in the Post newsroom. Chris and the Project Red Map team are in their headquarters. And the funny thing about state legislative elections is you, you don't know the whole story on election night, rarely if ever. And it's really the elections on Tuesday. It's not really till Thursday morning that you can feel really sure because there's 6,000 state legislative seats. But they started to see early signs of a shift. Um, some point around 3 a.m. when all the Western stuff came in, we were putting up stuff on the board and uh, we were like, wow. Around that time, we're like, wow, we, we're going to get 20 chambers. That's, we're heading to like 1994 and post-Watergate level flips. New York State Senate flipped to Republicans. The North Carolina Senate, the North Carolina House, the Ohio House, the Pennsylvania House, the Wisconsin Assembly, the Maine Senate. During lunch, we were getting messages of updates from states and more seats and stuff. It was just coming in. Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, all saw control of their legislative chambers flip to R. Just the scope. I mean, we just, it was just amazing. In the end, they flipped 20 of the 88 state legislative chambers that held elections that year. A historic political shift on the state level, a wave unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And hardly anyone saw it. So we put out an update, a memo, like 48 hours after that, and then another one, and then an end-of-the-year update, and eh, no one really noticed. Or at least they didn't notice at first. They still didn't understand why Republicans cared so much about these down-ballot races on the state level. But they were about to find out. After 2010, Republicans had control of the majority of state legislatures around the country. Now, they just needed to execute step two of the Red Map plan. Use the opportunity of a redistricting year to redraw the maps. And for David Daly, the guy who wrote the book on Red Map, that's where the injustice really started. Democrats were prepared for the way that redistricting had worked in all of these previous decades. Which is to say that most of the time, Democrats and Republicans both had a seat at the table. Democrats would draw their maps. Republicans would draw theirs. They would either find a way to compromise or the two sides would both rush off into court and try to find friendly judges and fight it out in the legal arena. So the old way of redistricting was prepping for legal fights and raising money for sort of what would come after. And that's what the Democrats were prepared for. Republicans were not playing that game anymore. The first big difference was that Republicans had maximized their control in these state legislative seats, becoming the majority by a wide margin. And in 2010, they picked up a lot of governorships, too. So in many cases, they didn't need to give Democrats a seat at the table. 
That allowed them to execute the most basic tenets of partisan mapmaking, cracking and packing. First, packing. The idea is to cram as many of the other side's voters into as few seats as possible, and they win those with 80 or 90 percent majorities. You pack all these Democrats into one or two districts so that you limit the number of districts with a Democratic majority. So that when federal elections happen, those people have less of an impact on the representatives that get elected. Then there's cracking. You spread out the Republican voters. So you want to get a lot of districts where you have 52 or 53 or 54 percent Republicans. Just barely enough to ensure that you win. This is gerrymandering 101. Gerrymandering is cheating. Gerrymandering is how you rig the rules of the game to advantage your side. To be clear, this wasn't invented by Red Map. Gerrymandering has always been part of redistricting, and Democrats do this too. Gerrymandering was widespread in Democratic-controlled districts in the 1970s and 1980s. But after 2010, the nature of cracking and packing changed. Because now, politicians in charge of redistricting had two things, better computers and better data. Gerrymandering from 1790 through 2000 is in its minor leagues, and in 2010 it jumps into the steroids era. And this is because of the technology. Highly advanced mapping software that can process and analyze all kinds of different demographic data. It's able to take these extremely detailed census files, and it makes them incredibly easy to work with, and on a screen to sort of color code every single piece of it. So all of a sudden, you can compare and overlay maps of all the information that's compiled by the census. Whether demographics or ethnicity or, or class or jobs or education background. And then you can also compile information available from other public records. What kind of years do individuals in these precincts turn out? And what years do they not turn out? Party affiliation, property values, fishing or hunting licenses. Who is licensed to carry a gun? That might tell you something about their politics. Then there's the information that can be bought from private companies about the people living in a certain neighborhood. What kind of cars do they drive? What TV shows people watch? What magazines they subscribe to? What sports teams they cheer for? All of that information is sold for pennies, and it can be purchased by political parties and used to create even finer and more exact maps. And in the end, you have an extremely detailed picture of the people living in a neighborhood. And you can predict with incredible accuracy whether they vote and who they would vote for in any given election. We are so polarized, and the information is so good on who lives in all of these houses that if you are able to put all of that together, you've got a really great ability to pick winners and losers. And what they did was this. They took all this information, they put it into a map, and then they made a lot of different maps with the district lines drawn in different ways. And with each map, they made it so that their party was more and more mathematically advantaged. Uh, so in 2000, politicians or mapmakers working on these districts may have had time to do four or five different drafts. In 2011, they're doing 50, 60, 70 draft maps, and they're making them more perfect every single time. The result? You can basically handpick the map that gives more representation, more voting power to certain demographics. It's by drawing lines in such a way that districts become older, whiter, more Republican. And in state after state, they're able to do that largely because... The data is just so specific and precise that when you draw these lines, you know on a block-by-block -block basis what the impact is of moving those lines a house or two in any direction. And when you're engineering the district lines to ensure maximum representation for older, white, rural, or suburban Republican voters, you're also engineering to limit the voting power of younger Black, Hispanic, and urban Democratic voters. In these incredibly polarized times in which most African-American voters and most Latino voters are Democrats, 
it is really easy to do racial gerrymanders that uh, look like partisan gerrymanders. To be clear, the software that made this gerrymandering possible is available to everybody, and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have started to use it. But after 2010, Republicans had the majority in so many state legislatures. And so when it came time to redraw the district lines, as it does once every 10 years, they had the most opportunities to adopt this new software to their benefit. And despite the fact that this was happening all over the country, most people didn't understand the long-term plan that was in motion here. Not even people who follow politics closely, like Paul Kane, the post-congressional reporter. But he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about state legislative seats, at least not until 2012, when he was on the campaign trail. It was a reporting trip up to Philadelphia, Allentown area. Pennsylvania, the definition of a battleground state. Paul gets to his hotel, he settles into his room, he switches on the TV, and after a little while, he notices something weird. It dawned on me as I'm watching TV, there wasn't a single ad for any house race. Ads for Obama and Mitt Romney, sure. Ads for the Pennsylvania Senate race, absolutely. But not a single ad for any of the congressional races in the area. And Paul realized there were no ads because Democrats had already given up. By the time Pennsylvania's redistricting wrapped up, Democrats looked at the map and they concluded these districts are literally unwinnable. Spending millions of dollars on ads here would just be throwing our money away. It wasn't even competitive. None of the races were competitive. And it dawned on me that, the, wow, they have drawn up these lines in ways that uh, seemed almost impenetrable. That became even more apparent on the night of Obama's re-election in 2012. Barack Obama won the popular vote. But the makeup of the House stayed almost the same. Just eight seats were turned over to the Democrats. Exactly as Chris Jankowski had intended. You can really see the scope and span of Project Red Map's achievements when you look at the data. For example, in Pennsylvania, 51% of voters voted for Democratic members of Congress. But because of the layout of the district lines, Democratic House candidates only won 28% of the seats. And if you put together the House races around the country, Republicans actually lost the popular vote that year. And yet they still won the third largest majority in the House since the 1920s. So there was the question. Why didn't more Democratic House candidates ride into victory on Obama's coattails? And that's when people started to realize exactly what had happened in the 2010 election. The Tea Party wave didn't make the difference in the long term. It was the reshaping of the state legislatures. Which really became the sort of force or the glue that began to hold together this Republican majority so that it was no longer just this one-term, weird, crazy Tea Party thing. 2014, 2016, in every subsequent election, Democrats didn't even come close to winning back the House. I still marvel at the brilliance and the audacity of it. Uh, this is really a politics moneyball moment. It took a while, but Democrats finally woke up to the reality of what had happened in 2010. And they've realized the depth of the hole that they've gotten into. It's going to take probably two consecutive wave elections, generational waves at the state level, for Democrats to really win back that kind of influence in redistricting. Even Obama has acknowledged this. Since leaving office, he's backed this thing called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. It's led by former Attorney General Eric Holder, and its mission is to basically do what Red Map did in 2010, wrestle back control of the redistricting process on behalf of the Democrats. 
And there are other efforts that are being taken to limit lawmakers' ability to draw congressional lines that aggressively favor one party or the other. The Supreme Court has heard cases on this issue, but they've largely refused to weigh in. For what it's worth, one of those cases was in Maryland, where it was actually the Democrats who were accused of gerrymandering. Some advocacy groups have called for amendments to state constitutions to govern the redistricting process. Others are pushing for the establishment of new independent commissions that would take over responsibilities for drawing the maps. Chris Jankowski says that he's not categorically opposed to finding ways to tackle this issue of disproportionate map making, but he's also not going to apologize for the successes of Project Red Map. He's not going to act like what he started in 2010 was wrong. Because everyone else ignored those dinky little statehouse races, wrote them off. And he was one of the few who realized that these down-ballot races are critical in the success of national elections. It was, you know, part of a process where folks have kind of realized uh, the importance of state elections and what we did in 2010. Uh, seems to have become more relevant as the years have gone by. For me, you know, it's, I've spent, I've spent you know, over 20 years now today on state-level elections. And so everything in Washington, D.C. is so focused on Washington and federal elections, which are obviously very important. Uh, but to have the president of the United States identify something that you know, I, along with others, have been working on quietly without any appreciation uh, as being a priority for his party and his time when he leaves the White House. It's, uh, it marks a, a, a big shift. Chris's comment made me think about this story that I heard from Paul, the guy who covers Congress for The Post. I had an interview with Nancy Pelosi in 2008, right before the Democratic Convention. And, you know, she had told me uh, at the time that she had a four-part plan for essentially permanent dominance. Uh, one was winning the majority in the first place in 2006, and she had done that. Her next goal going forward was to get as big a majority as possible through the 08 elections. Part three was going to be holding on. She knew it was going to be difficult in 2010, but she just wanted to hold on, and then Step four was going to be what she called fair redistricting, and that that would give them a majority as far as the eye can see. That was her plan. But you could say that maybe her plan was out of order. It needed not just the House majority, but the state house majorities in Lansing and Columbus and Harrisburg and Tallahassee. And instead, they got beat up there and never had a chance. Maybe she got the plan backwards. Maybe Democrats in 2006 got too far ahead of themselves. Because think back to that question that Obama asked after the 2010 midterm election. Could I have done something differently or done something more so that those folks would still be here? This is what could have been done differently. They could have found a way to make Americans care more about their state elections. Maybe it wouldn't have saved them from losing the majority in 2010, but it could have given them a better shot at getting it back in 2012 or 2014 or 2016. We talk about sweeping elections as a wave, a thing that comes and crashes and then it's gone. But real wave elections, they're more like a scaffold. These down-ballot seats, these delegates and assemblymen and governors and state judges, the races that we don't talk about, the races that we don't see on national news, they are the edifice that supports lasting gains and losses in the highest level of government. That's usually the end result of what you get after a big wave election, uh, is you get to build that infrastructure and support that protects you, you know, it's your, it's your flood insurance for going forward. That infrastructure, that flood insurance, it used to be like this happy byproduct of a wave election. 
like in the democratic waves of 1954 and 1974, which brought about the 40-year drought of House Republicans and for NRCC chair Bill Paxson. You had state legislatures that were dominated by the Democrats, generations, and so they were drawing the lines. That's a major reason why we were not players. And after the 1994 Republican Revolution, these down-ballot seats are what made it hard for Democrats like Sarah Feinberg to recruit candidates that were willing to run for congressional seats that appeared unwinnable. Welcome to a country that's been gerrymandered. I mean, you fight and you work and you do everything you possibly can to hold on. But you are probably going to lose relatively quickly. It's the kind of state-level party infrastructure that Howard Dean has been evangelizing about for years. And we should forget about Washington once in a while and get out in the states and win elections. In mayor's elections and state legislatures, you can't build a party in Washington. You can only build a party in the state legislature, in city council, in school boards, in controllers uh, of counties. That's how you build a party. Having that infrastructure on the local and state political level also creates kind of a self-sustaining system. Because it's a lot easier to convince talented small-town mayors and city council chairs and state assemblymen to run for Congress when those candidates know that they have a fair shot at winning and that they're not going to be stuck in the minority for the next decade. And it's a lot easier to win congressional seats or even to win the presidency when your party controls the state legislature and can pass voter registration laws. Project Red Map's achievement was explicitly weaponizing these down-ballot races, making them a driving objective of a wave election, not just an incidental byproduct. But gerrymandering also isn't bulletproof. In the years since the 2010 census, neighborhoods have changed demographically, populations have shifted, and the congressional maps drawn with laser-like precision to advantage Republicans are now less effective than they once were. The odds have changed, if just a little bit. And then there's this. There are only a couple more years before the 2020 census, when the whole redistricting process starts again. And Democrats trying to crawl out from minority status in the House, they have the 2018 and 2020 election cycles to try to win back some of those state legislative seats that they lost in 2010. So when we talk about this idea of a blue wave that could be coming in November of 2018, when you sit down on your couch on election night to watch the returns come in, don't just look at the seats that got flipped in Congress or in the Senate or even which states are looking like they're going to be more blue or more red in the lead up to the presidential election. What you should really be looking at is how many state legislative seats flipped from one party to the other. And there's one person who knows this better than anyone. Chip Kravak, the Republican congressman representing the 8th District of Minnesota, he was the exception to the rule. Project Red Map did not save him. Congressmen come and go. You know, and I was just, uh, I was felt blessed, and I respected my time for the people of the 8th District of Minnesota, and I appreciated their, their confidence in me to do so, but I wasn't going to drag this out. Two years after he was swept into office in the 2010 Republican wave, Chip lost his reelection. Republicans had actually won control of the state Senate and the state House in Minnesota, but Minnesota's governor was still a Democrat. So the whole idea of completely changing the redistricting process didn't end up working there. So Chip had exactly the kind of election that the Red Map team were hoping to avoid. Democrats spent millions trying to reclaim the seat, and Republicans spent double to try and protect it. And in the end, Chip lost by nine percentage points to his Democratic challenger. Was there any part of you that was relieved 
to... <laughs> now you're asking tough questions. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to go home. <laughs> you know, I slept on an air mattress in my office. You know, I was showering down in the gym, you know, after working out in the mornings and stuff. And it was like, yeah, I mean, this, uh, you know, I served the country for 24 years in the military. And it was like, okay, I've done my, done my part. You know, I didn't want to be in politics, really. You know, I just felt the need to try to make a difference. That's what I tried to do. And if I made even the minutest difference in the 8th District of Minnesota and bettered the lives of people in the 8th District of Minnesota, I was successful. He moved to New Hampshire. And now he does something completely different. Good morning. If you notice, there was no reading last night because it will be all lecture-based. Congressman Chip Kravak now teaches high school social studies at Bishop Curtin High School in New Hampshire. For the record, he says that he likes this much better. And in his classes, he teaches his students about redistricting in state legislatures and how their state house actually plays a really important role in who they elect for Congress. I, I explain in the ideas of federalism and how important states are in national elections where the majority of people don't really pay attention to a state election. And I emphasize to my kids how important state representatives are to the, to the states and also the country because it is the states can have a definite effect on how the country votes because those are the people that are going to be making the decisions on the lines. And he teaches about how there's this line like this little string that connects all the different parts of our government. You pull on the end of it, and it tugs just slightly at everything else. So it's about how a vote for your state rep helps determine the majority in your state house. How the party in control of the state house holds the key to mapping congressional districts. How those maps can make or break who gets elected to the House of Representatives how those House members are part of the weights that shift the balance of power in Congress, and how Congress holds the ultimate check in power against the president. So your vote in 2018 is every bit as important as your vote in 2016. Although I'm not sure I really believe that, but you know. That's what I stress upon my kids. That's why the state elections are so important in that idea of federalism that balance the check of the power of the national government is important. Hopefully they understand that. And he teaches them, if you want to make a difference, you should vote in state elections. been How to Flip the House, a special audio miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast. To learn more about this miniseries and about the story of the 2010 election, check out wapo.st slash how to flip the house. There we've got more behind the scenes data, historical context, and archival information that will help you dive deeper into the midterms. We want to thank our guests on today's show, Chip Kravak, David Daly, Chris Jankowski, and Paul Kane. Also, a special thank you to Congressman Rick Nolan and his staff. In the process of researching this story, one resource that I found extremely helpful was David Daly's book, which you've heard the name of, Ratfucked, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. So I would encourage you to check it out if you're curious to learn more about the 2010 midterm election. This story was reported and written by me, Martine Powers. It was produced by Carol Alderman with editorial oversight from Jess Stahl. Ted Muldoon produced the prologue to this series, and he wrote the Can He Do That theme song. Kat Rudell Brooks designed the art for this series. Ruben Fischerbaum and Kazi Awal created the beautiful accompanying page for this miniseries, which, again, you can find at wapo.st slash howtoflipthehouse. 
Special thank you for editorial insights from Dave Clark and Lillian Cunningham. And this series would not have been possible without the support of Mike Semmel and Victoria Benning. And I'd also like to give a special shout out to Fez Siddiqui and Colin Pope for their help and encouragement. If you'd like to hear more political stories from The Washington Post, check out other episodes of Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. You can find an episode archive at wapo.st slash can he do that. And Can He Do That is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 